Every now and then, the internet bestows upon me a gift, a little nugget of knowledge that makes me exceedingly happy, and that happened this week when I discovered the existence of an organization, of a club, if you will, that resonates really deeply inside of me. The name of this club is the Dull Men's Club, and the Dull Men's Club, it started in New York, there's now chapters in Washington, D.C., and in London, is halfway an aptly named group. It's actually a group made up of men and women now, but it's made up of people who have really weird, seemingly dull interests, and they're obsessed with these things. So there was one person that they interviewed who is obsessed with taking pictures of tombstones, which that didn't seem super dull. I know people who do that. It's kind of a thing. It's a photography thing. The next guy was someone who collected milk bottles, old milk bottles, but a lot of milk bottles. And he was sitting in a room surrounded by thousands of milk bottles and then confessed that he hates milk, which is weird. It's an odd thing to collect if you hate milk, but there it is. My particular favorite slash weirdest and most unrelatable to me was a man who took pictures of roundabouts. And so he would find roundabouts in cities, you know, the things that they're trying to infiltrate our dear Loganville with and is going to kill us all, those things, he finds them in cities and takes pictures of them and just has picture after picture of roundabouts from different places and different towns. And so when I saw this, it just, again, it hit me really deeply because I am a man who finds great interest in things that other people often find very dull. And so I was going through my catalog of dull things that I get interested in, and I was trying to decide if I was going to be in the dull men's club, and I plan to one day be in the dull men's club, what would my thing be? How would I narrow down all the weird little things that I'm interested in and find the one that they would feature about me on a video of such? And I decided that my dull interest of choice would be either attending or preferably participating in grand openings. It doesn't matter what kind of grand openings, big grand openings, little grand openings, it doesn't matter. Government buildings, sandwich shops, tire depots, I don't care. If something is opening, I want to be a part of it. Because on one side, there's something very cool about a grand opening, because whether it's a really big, important seeming kind of thing that's opening up, like a presidential library or a government building, or something that seems kind of inconsequential, like when the firehouse subs down the road opens up, somebody put a lot of work into that. Somebody put a lot of thought into that. Somebody put a lot of effort into that. And so I'd like to be a part of their celebration. But also, I love normal-sized things that are grown up to look very big. And so the fact that most grand openings feature a large pair of scissors also entices me very deeply. And so I would really like to be involved at least weekly in some kind of grand opening, and that would be my thing. And then as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I realized that being involved in grand openings is something that's really important inside of Scripture too. In the book of Ezra, a really important grand opening was going on because the people were coming back from exile, out of captivity, and they were rebuilding the temple, and they were rebuilding the walls around their city. They were picking up the pieces of everything that fell apart. And in Ezra chapter 6, we see God's people dedicating the new temple. It was a grand opening. And this is what it says in chapter 6, verse 16. As they were coming in to the house of God, to the finished temple to celebrate, and they were offering up their praises, verse 16 says, And the people of Israel 
the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. There was joy and there was passion and there was excitement because they were a part of the grand opening of God's rebuilt temple. This beautiful place where they could come together and worship God in spirit and in truth and they were being reminded that they were being brought out of captivity and into their freedom. They were being delivered out of their bondage and back into the presence of God where they could worship Him freely. And it's very likely that it was this instance in the book of Ezra that Psalm 18 was composed for. It's very likely that the psalmist wrote Psalm chapter 118 to be used in the celebration of the dedication of this new temple. Psalm 118 is really important, as all passages of Scripture are. But it's very unique in these Hallel Psalms that we've been going through, or these Psalms of praise. Psalm chapter 113 through 118. Psalm 118 is the last Hallel, or the last praise, in this category of Psalms. But it's also a Psalm of thanksgiving, of offering up praise to God for His deliverance and what He's done in the lives of the people. It's a song of completion. We see Psalm 118 summarize some of the big ideas that the other Hallel Psalms have put out before us. And it's also a psalm of salvation. And so this morning, we're going to look not only at the text of this psalm, but we're going to look at the place of this psalm in the full narrative of Scripture and how God used the words and the idea of this psalm to lay about the coming of Christ and will one day bring about the return of of Christ, whereas people will one day rejoice and dwell in the house of God forever. And so we're going to look at this morning as the anthem of salvation, not only for the people of ancient Israel, but also for us as well. And so because these psalms were meant to be used in worship and used in the congregation, I'm going to ask you, as I have the last several weeks as we've gone through these Hillel psalms, to help me out in the reading of the psalms. And so I'll read the words that are in plain text, and then we're all going to read together any words that are bold and underlined. And so this is the word of the Lord. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, and I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as a helper, and I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live 
and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the feastal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. And God, as we're going to see this morning, we thank you and praise you for your salvation and the good gift that you gave us that was spoken of in Psalm 118 and that was finished with Christ on the cross and through the resurrection and that will one day be completely fulfilled when Christ returns to make all things right and all things new and together we'll sing blessed be the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So Father, as we discuss your word and we discuss your plan and your goodness and your glory and your love and your grace, help us to know you more, help us to love you more, help us to understand your love for us in a way that we never have before. And help us to leave this place this morning, going out and loving our neighbors as ourselves and loving you, most importantly, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so speak to us this morning through your word, and we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that we've seen all through these Hallel Psalms, through every single chapter, and really that we see through the entire book of Psalms, is the importance of the repetition. The repetition is what helps the psalm stand out as poetry. It was artistic. It was a creative way to write. But also we've seen that the repetition serves a very important purpose because God is very big on his people remembering because God understands that we have a tendency to forget. It's easy for us to forget his goodness and his grace. It's easy for us to forget all the things that he's done for us in our time of need and in our time of weakness. And so God is so good and so faithful to us that he gives us these gifts like the repetition of the Psalms to be able to remember what God has done for us on a constant basis. And so not only do the Psalms have repetition inside their text, but Psalm 118 does an incredible job of recapping and revisiting some of the major things that took place from Psalm 113 to 117. Because if this is a psalm of thanks, then we better remember why we're thankful. And so this psalm begins with reminding us all the reasons that we have to praise God and all the reasons that we have to offer up a song of thanksgiving. And so in verse 1, we see it harken back to Psalm chapter 117 that we looked at just a couple weeks ago. It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. 
And we saw in Psalms chapter 117 that the love of God is deep and is faithful and is something that we can't fully wrap our minds around, but we understand that it is steadfast. That there's nothing that can change the love of God. There's nothing that can take the love of God away, but his love endures for his people forever. And so because of that, because that's the kind of love that God has for his people, he's worthy of our praise and he's worthy of our thanksgiving. Verses 2 through 4 throw us back to 117 and also 113. Because verse 2 through 4 says, Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. And as we saw, this three-part call to worship is a reminder that God is calling people from all nations and all backgrounds and all different situations to come together and worship Him in spirit and in truth. That all of Israel had the call to come and to worship God. That the priests and the Levites, the religious leaders, had the calling to come and worship God. And then we see that beautiful quote there in verse 4 that says, Let all those who say to the Lord, who love the Lord, say, The steadfast love endures forever. And that's where we fit. That category of everybody else who loves the Lord. And it reminds us of that promise that Christ brought us in, even though we didn't really belong and didn't really fit. His salvation reached to where we were to give us the ability to know the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And so we're reminded that this steadfast love of God is offered to anyone who would receive it. And that it's no respecter of persons, and it's not based on an ethnicity or, or a societal place, but it's based on the love that God offers for us, and because of that, he's worthy of our praise, and he's worthy of our thanksgiving. Verses 5 through 7 help us go back to chapter 116 and 113. It says, Out of my distress I called to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, and I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as a helper, and I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. And we saw in chapter 113 that God raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. In 116, we saw this really beautiful and profound personal psalm where the psalmist was talking about being pulled to the place where he felt like he was encapsulated by death, and yet God, being rich in mercy, reached to where he was in the midst of his distress and picked him up from the mire and picked him up from his brokenness and set him back on the path to redemption. And so we're reminded here that God is with us in our distress. God is with us in our time of need. God is with us when everything else seems to be falling apart, when everyone else seems to be leaving us, when everyone else seems to be against us, that God is with us and God is for us and God works on our behalf and for our good. And because of that, he's worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving. Verse 8 and 9 says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man and princes. And we're reminded again from Psalm 113 that God takes the broken and the poor and raises them up to sit with princes. That his love is this great equalizer and that he's the only place that we need to look for our hope and for our strength and for our security. And Psalm 115 reminded us that idolatry is a really dangerous thing. 
That we can look to all different places and all different kinds of people to try to find our hope and our security and our trust. But as Psalm 115 says, these places that we look, they might have eyes, but they can't see. They might have mouths, but they can't speak. They might have feet, but they can't move. Because the idols that we look to aren't strong enough to give us what we need. But we have a God who is stronger far beyond what we could ever possibly need or require. A God who is able to supply all of our needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. A God who is able to care for us and love us and save us in a way that nothing else can. And so because he's worthy of our trust, he's also worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving. Verse 14 through 16 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And the right hand of the Lord exalts. And the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And we're reminded of the truth of Psalm 114. They reminded us of that time when God took his people out of Egypt and not only conquered their enemies in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, but set them on a path leading to them to the promised land. And the people were able to witness the fact that nature itself had to bow to the power and the majesty and the might of God. And so here in Psalm 118, we're reminded that God is powerful beyond imagination. That God is is valiant and his right hand is strong and full of salvation and full of the power that creates the universe and holds it in its place. And so because God is mighty and because God is strong and because God is powerful beyond our recognition and because God is powerful not only over our enemies but his, he's worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving. This summary at the first part of chapter 118 reminds us that the God that we serve is a God who is worthy of praise. A God who loves people in a way that we can't fully grasp with a steadfast, never-ending, never-failing love. And he is a God who is mighty to save. So this is a call for us to remember who God is as he's revealed to us in Scripture and offer up with our whole hearts thanksgiving and praise now and forevermore. Before we move on to the rest of the text, I want to talk about Scripture and how we interpret it. Interpreting Scripture can be a really tricky, sometimes very difficult task. Because we have to ask, you know, what does this mean? And how do I understand the, the true depth of this passage of Scripture? Things that were written thousands of years ago. How do I make sense of all this with all the cultural surroundings? And then how does it find its place in the rest of the Bible? And we've done that with a certain pattern through the Hillel Psalms. So for each of the Psalms that we've looked at so far, we've started with the Passover. Because these Hillel Psalms were written to remind the people when God delivered them out of Egypt. When God took their ancestors out of slavery and brought them to the promised land. And so these Psalms would be sung during the Passover meals and the festivals as they celebrated the good work that God had done for their ancestors generations ago. And so we started there in the context that these Psalms are pointing us back to. And then we looked at the context of the psalms where they were used. So when the people of ancient Israel would use these psalms in their worship and in their praise, in all their different festivals and feasts and in their congregational worship, and then we looked at how these psalms point us to Christ and the work that Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection and how Jesus changed the nature of these psalms. But today we're going to do that 
in reverse. Today is a little different because Psalm 18 is, is used regularly throughout Scripture, in particular in reference to the work that Christ was going to do, not just on the cross, not just in the empty tomb, but when he comes again to bring the world to the way that it's supposed to be. And so because of that, it's better to look at this psalm and its place in all of Scripture before we can fully really understand how we use it in its present context. And so I want to look at two particular instances in the Gospels when Psalm 118 is used or referenced. The first is what we call the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And if you don't know what happens in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, understanding that he's not going to make it out alive. He'd been preparing his disciples for this. He had been readying them to go into Jerusalem. He knew that this was the culmination of his ministry, that he was going to come into Jerusalem, he was going to be crucified, and then on that third day he was going to raise again and start this beautiful new thing that God was doing in the world. But before that could happen, he had to get into Jerusalem. And so to fulfill a prophecy, Jesus had his disciples get him a donkey. And Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey at the beginning of that Passover week. And as he did, the people knew he was coming. And the people expected Jesus to be the Messiah. They expected him to be the king. And they thought he was going to ride into Jerusalem and he was going to set up his authority. He was going to set up his dominion. They were going to overthrow Rome and everything was going to be good for the first time in a long time. And so as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, the people lined the streets on both sides and they started laying their clothes on the ground and they started waving palm trees. And what they said as Jesus entered the city was, Hosanna. Or God save us. He said, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Right out of verse 26. And they said, Hosanna. And so as Jesus walked through, they said, God save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. The people, much like the people in the book of Ezra, were celebrating what they believed to be their deliverance. Just like the people in Ezra would have used this psalm to celebrate God taking them out of exile and bringing them back to the temple where they could worship him, the people now were gathered around knowing that Jesus is the one who's going to bring God's kingdom to earth and he's going to be the one who's going to reestablish the temple. He's going to be the one who reestablishes God's reign. He's the one who's coming to set us free. And so as they sang this psalm, they were singing about their deliverance. They were singing in expectation for their salvation. But as they were singing this psalm dedicated, that was used to dedicate at one point a new temple, Jesus was about to tear one down. See, it wouldn't be long after Jesus rides into Jerusalem that he would head straight to the temple. And when Jesus got to the temple, what he found was a disgusting sight to him. There were people there who were taking advantage of people that were trying to worship God. Because they knew these people were coming from all over the place because it was the Passover week to come and to offer sacrifices to God and to worship God. And so they knew that this was prime opportunity to jack up the prices. 
And so they took these animals that were meant to be sacrificed and they would raise the prices and they were extorting people for their money. And Jesus saw this and it filled him with rage. And we know that Jesus walked into that temple that day and grabbed a whip and started turning over tables and ran the money changers out of the temple saying, this is not how God's house is going to be used. And so already people started to have a pretty big problem with what Jesus was doing, especially in relation to the temple. But this wasn't the last temple controversy that Jesus would have as he's in Jerusalem. Because as he was going around teaching in the shadow of the temple, Jesus prophesied that one day that that temple would be completely torn down. And that not one stone would be left on top of the other. And the people were saying, how could you say this? How could you make this kind of a claim? This is, this is the temple that was rebuilt. This is the temple that the people around Ezra were singing and worshiping God because of. This is the place where we go to meet with God. How dare you say that it's going to be torn down? But as Jesus prophesied the destruction of one temple, he also prophesied the building of another. Because in some kind of vague terms, but talking about his own body, Jesus says, but if you tear this temple down... I'll rebuild it in three days. And as we see after this triumphal entry where the people were quoting Psalms saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we see that God was tearing down the old system to make way for a new, better temple and a new and better salvation. And so the people were singing a very old praise as Jesus was coming into the city. But little did they know they were also ushering in a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of king, and a new salvation. But that wouldn't be the last time that this psalm was saying during that Passover week. Because we've already discussed over the last several weeks, one of the main uses of the Hallel Psalms was in the Passover meal. And so we've already discussed that Jesus and his disciples, when they went to what we now call the Last Supper, and as they were eating that ritualistic meal, they would also be singing through these psalms. And the last psalm that Jesus would have sang would have been Psalm chapter 118. And it doesn't seem to fit the circumstance. Because Psalm 118 is a psalm of joy and a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of praise that God delivered the people out of a difficult situation. But we know that Jesus was about to enter into one. And I can't imagine what the mood would have felt like in that upper room that night. Because Jesus knew what was about to happen. The disciples knew what was about to happen. In fact, as they were taking the meal, Jesus dismissed one of his disciples, one of the people who had been with him through his entire ministry. He gave him permission to get up and go so that he could betray him. That doesn't lighten the mood at the dinner table. And so there's this heavy cloud of despair and uncertainty hanging over the heads of the disciples and we know that as Jesus left the table and went out to the garden to pray that he was grieved and broken over what was about to happen and yet in the midst of that difficult and harsh circumstance Jesus and his disciples gathered together and they sang about the steadfast love that endures forever of the God who loved them and created them and also we see Jesus singing about the salvation that he was about to bring. As they sang this psalm, Jesus was about to fulfill it. And this was the psalm that prepared Jesus to go into despair to save us from it. 
This psalm prepared Jesus to pass into death so that he could give us life. And at the end of the singing of that psalm, it would never be the same because Jesus fundamentally changed what it means to be delivered by God once and for all. And then Jesus would go after that meal. He would be betrayed. He would be accused. He would be tried. He would be convicted. He would be beaten. And then he would be killed on the cross. But then three days later, he would rebuild the temple as he burst through giving new life to the world through his own resurrection. And it's through the lens of the cross and the resurrection of Christ that we see this passage as it's meant to be seen. Because after the summary kind of comes to a head in chapter 118, verse 16, the very next verse, the psalmist says, I shall not die, but I shall live. And little could the psalmist have possibly known what he was saying or what he was writing, because the psalmist surely thought that this was something for the temporary, for the right there and the right now. That this was a momentary salvation that God brought, that he was surrounded by his enemies, and yet God delivered him. That the people were in the midst of exile, and yet God brought them home. And so they could say very realistically, we are not going to die today, but we are going to live. But they knew there was the weight that one day they would die. But Jesus fundamentally changed what this verse means, because Jesus secured this declaration for eternity. When Jesus came out of the grave on that third day, when Jesus rose from the dead, he brought with him the promise of new life and unending praise through his own death and through his own resurrection. And so not only does Jesus say to those people that he's going to tear the temple down and rebuild it, not only does Jesus declare on that Easter Sunday that I shall not die, but I shall live, but he gives all of us who trust in him for salvation the ability to take ownership of that passage of Scripture and every moment and every day of our lives know that if we have trusted in Christ for salvation, that that's true for us. That no matter what the world can do to me, I shall not die, but I shall live because I trust that the God who so loved the world and gave Christ for it, that if I trust in him for salvation, I won't perish, but I'll have everlasting life. Through the death and resurrection, Jesus showed us in full the steadfast love of God. And through that, He delivers us from sin and from shame and even from death. And this invitation reaches across borders and boundaries from princes to peasants and from priests to pagans for anyone who would trust in the name of the Lord. That promise of salvation and that promise of life belongs to us. Verse 17 is the declaration for all of those who trust in Christ for salvation. Because we know that even if we draw our last breath here and now, that we have a promise that we not only have life after death, but that our eternity is secured in Christ and that one day we'll experience a resurrection like His and be with Christ alive forever. Verse 18 through 21 says that the Lord has disciplined me severely. But he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord and the righteous shall enter through it. And I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And this passage of scripture reminds us that there's a twofold nature to the salvation that Jesus brought. Because not only are we forgiven of our sins, not only are we made alive in Christ, not only do we have this promise of eternal life in Jesus, but we're also promised that we're given something out of that salvation. 
It's not a second chance. It's not an opportunity to be better, but that through salvation, God gives us the righteousness of Christ. That he opens up the door to us, the ability to walk in the way that we were designed to live. Paul says that at one point in time, we are slaves to our sin, but we're set free by Christ so that we can walk in the way that we were called to walk. So that, as he says in Ephesians, that we can walk in the good works that were designed for us before the foundation of the earth. Jesus' death not only changes our eternity, but it changes who we are on a fundamental level because we pass not only out of death and into life, but we pass from sin into righteousness. Paul talks about this a lot in Romans 3, 21 through 26. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In Romans 6, 15-23, Paul says, What then are we to sin because we're no longer under law but grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to become slaves of righteousness. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And he says this, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Romans 8-10 through says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And time and time again, Paul is connecting this idea that when we come to faith in Christ, that we are both given a righteousness that's a gift that comes from God, and that that righteousness leads to life and eternal life. And he even came to the point in Philippians where he looked at all the things that he had that he once thought were important. And he said, indeed, I count everything as loss or as rubbish because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And through the lens of Paul, we see Psalm 118 
as it's meant to be seen. That Christ gives us the life that the psalmist looked forward to and he gives us the righteousness that the psalmist longed for so desperately and asked God to open him the gates to. And he did that all through Christ. Verse 22 says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is a prophecy about Christ. That stone that the builders rejected was Jesus who came to bring salvation to the world but was rejected by his own people and scorned by his own people and killed by his own people. And this is the hope that we have in Christ, that he was the Messiah who was rejected and scorned, who became the eternal hope for broken sinners. The rejected stone became the cornerstone so that wayward sinners could become sons and daughters of God. And the result of this when we realize how amazing it is that Jesus endured death, that he endured shame, that he endured rejection, that he endured despair, that he endured all of these things so that we could be delivered from it, the result of that in the psalmist's life and in our lives as well should be praise and thanksgiving. Because the psalmist recognized in verse 23 that this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord, and give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. 27 says, The Lord is God, and he has made light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And the summary here says, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And this psalm, this anthem of deliverance for the ancient Israelite people as they came home from exile is now the anthem of the Christian life. Even more than that, it's the anthem of the Christian eternity. It's an unending psalm of praise from the lips of the redeemed. And so if we know and we trust in Christ for salvation, then this song should sound from our lips daily. And this song should sound from our lives from this time forth and forevermore because we serve a God who is loving with a steadfast love, who delivers us from despair, who is stronger than our enemies, who is stronger than our brokenness, and who has offered us salvation in a way that we can never earn for ourselves through the grace and mercy of His Son, Jesus Christ. But the use of this psalm didn't end in the book of Psalms. It didn't even end in the book of Matthew. Because one day, there will be a time when we sing this psalm and everything will change. Psalm 118 is not only the soundtrack of the Christian life, but it's the soundtrack of Christ's return and of God's new creation. In Matthew 23, as Jesus is in the midst of all of this controversy in Jerusalem, waiting on the day that he'll die. He overlooks the city and he says this, in verse 37 through 39, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I have longed to gather you, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
is Jesus' mourning with this beautiful Christ-like mourning, this Messiah's sadness over the city of Jerusalem. He says, how often I wanted to gather you under and protect you, but you wouldn't let me. And now there's just desolation left for you now. And you're not going to see me again until one day you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what happens when Christ comes back at that time will make the triumphal entry look very small in comparison because he's returning not simply to ride into Jerusalem to be killed, but when Christ comes back under the anthem of this sound and the anthem of the song, he's coming back in glory to make all things right. And all things new. And we get a picture of what that will look like in Revelation chapter 21. And what's amazing about Revelation 20 and 21 is that we see the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 118. John says in verse 9 of chapter 21, that then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is that moment when Christ returns to make all things right anew. And he brings heaven to earth. And as John describes this in this beautiful apocalyptic language, he says, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And if you're keeping up with the score, that's 12 gates. And a wall of the city has 12 foundations. And on them, there were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. If you haven't caught on so far, 12 is really important there. And when we look at the book of Revelation... It uses these numerals of 12 to help us see the picture of the fullness of God's people. The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 names of the apostles. The people who loved and worshipped God before Christ and the people who love and worship God after Christ and through Christ. And so what we see here in Revelation 21 is a picture that when Christ returns to make everything right and everything new, that all the people who have trusted in God for salvation, all the people who trust in Christ for salvation will be there with Christ without one single person left or one single person abandoned. And so all of those who have had faith in Christ in their lives and trust in Him for salvation will be with God forever. And we'll see that fulfillment when all Israel, when all the priests, and when all the people who worship God are able to stand together in one harmony, in one accord, and say, blessed be the name of he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is God because of his steadfast love, and we'll be able to worship him from that day forevermore. But that's not the only place where where Revelation 20 and 21 fulfill what the Psalms were telling us. Because in Revelation 20, we see that as Christ returns, that everything changes. And in this new world that God restores, when God brings heaven to earth, there will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more sickness or no more death. That all of those things will pass away. The death that encompassed the psalmist when he cried out to God the distress that weighed on the people as they were in exile, the hurt and the brokenness that sat with Jesus and the disciples at that last supper table, the pain 
and the sorrow and the difficulty that life brings to each and every one of us, those things that make it hard for us at times to offer up thanksgiving and praise. One day when Christ returns, all of those things will pass away and every tear will be wiped away and the powers of hell and the powers of death and all of our sin and all of our shame will be taken out of God's good city and thrown into death once and for all. And not only will we be with Christ as we're meant to be, but we'll be with Christ without any of the pain and any of the sorrow and any of the hurt and even any of the death. And we'll be able to fully understand what it means to say as the psalmist did, I shall not die, but I will live. But then one of the most amazing parts of Revelation chapter 21 Because as Jesus says, this whole thing is inaugurated by people saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, singing this psalm that was originally written to dedicate a new temple. But in this new world, John says in Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, one day we'll sing this song not to celebrate the building or the dedication of a temple, but one day we'll sing this psalm because God himself will be our temple and we will be fully in the presence of God for all eternity and we'll have no need for a building to come together to worship God because we will be his people and he will be our God and we will be in his midst in the most intimate way we could ever fathom or understand. That's what Psalm 118 is pushing us towards. It takes us by the cross and the empty tomb and reminds us of the salvation that Jesus brought into the world. And then it takes us directly to the time when Christ returns to make all things right and all things new. And all of those promises, all of those declarations, all of those cries out to God, all of those celebrations of his steadfast love will be made full and we'll understand them in a way that we could have never before because as we're told in scripture, our faith will be made sight. And so until then, It's our responsibility to do what the people of ancient Israel did. To do what Christ and his disciples did. And to keep these psalms of deliverance always on our lips. To use these in our worship. To use these in our devotion. And then to let our lives put these on display for the world around us. Because we believe that we have a God who has a steadfast love for his people. And it doesn't matter who the world may think we are. Whether we appear to be the lowliest of lows or the highest of highs. That God's love and mercy and grace is sufficient for all of us. And that he raises up broken sinners to sit with princes. And that he lavishes his love on his people. And he cares for the broken and the hurting. And that he delivers us from death and despair. And that he is stronger than our enemies. He's stronger than the enemies around us and the enemies within us. He's stronger than our sin and our shame and our brokenness. And because of that love that he has for us and because of that strength that fuels that love, when he saves us, he saves us once and for all. And we have a hope that will never pass away. And that is plenty of cause for us to spend the rest of our lives offering thanks to God. And so Lydia is going to come and she's going to play quietly and we're going to have just a time to, to reflect on God's word. And if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before, then this is what we call the gospel. We've talked about it all morning. That God so loved the world that he gave Christ. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us are on a pathway heading towards death. But Christ came to give us life and he came to offer it as a free gift. To anyone who would believe. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to try to achieve it. But he offers it to us freely. 
And so if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ before, then at any point during this time, you can come and talk with me. I'll be in the front. You can talk with Pastor David. He'll be on the back row. And you can talk with us about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation and be baptized. If you're here and you trust in Christ for salvation, then remember the truthfulness of these words. That we're able to declare I shall not die, but I will live because the cornerstone that the builders or the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of our faith and our salvation and will never pass away. To know that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again, and the echoes of this psalm will echo through all of eternity because this will never change and it will never waver. One day we'll get to be with Christ forever in the fullness of his presence. But until then, it's our job to bring these little pieces of heaven to earth and praise God and thank God with everything that we have. And worship him in spirit and truth and then to put our love and our affection for a God of steadfast love on display to all peoples from all nations, from all places, because that's the kind of God that we serve.